Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Ephesians. We're going to start in chapter 4, and then we're going to jump back to chapter 1. So while you make those ready, uh, appreciated Michael DeFazio last week uh, speaking while I was gone, and he opened this uh, entire book, which is one of the most encouraging books in the New Testament, written by the Apostle Paul. We've called this uh, service, as Adam expressed earlier, repurposed, taking something that uh, has lost its value or can have its value restored by a different use or just being made better or new. And that's what the book of Ephesians is about. It's about the work that God's done. Michael said a lot of good things. He talks really fast, and he's really smart, and he's skinny, and he has hair. So last week was his last sermon ever here, and uh, I can do that. Uh, But of the many good things Michael said, he said this, all of God has been working throughout all of time to save all of you. And I'm uncomfortable saying you because I want to read that the way it works for me. All of God has been working through all of time to save all of me. And uh, I want to cherish that. And that opening sentence that Michael talked about at at length last week taught us some things. For instance, God has chosen us and invited us. What a privilege. Jesus has freed us and forgiven us. And the Holy Spirit has sealed us and is starting a new life with us. There's a lot to be encouraged about in this. But what I'd really like to do this morning is begin with one of my rants. I know this is why you come to church to hear my feelings on inane things, so here we go. When I was a kid, I got in trouble for a lot of things, mostly my mouth. I know that will shock many of you. Uh, uh, yeah, I have a tendency to have a quick wit, and it comes out really uncensored really quickly. When I was a kid, I got grounded for, not grounded, but I got in trouble with both my mom and dad. And when I irritated both of them, I had, had to pay attention because I could ir- irritate my dad really quickly, my mom not so much. And uh, the phrase, and it wasn't obscene, but the phrase that got me in trouble with my parents regularly was this phrase. I know. Oh, it's kind of funny. Both services, parents are like, oh, that kills you. Yeah. You're trying to teach your child something. You're trying to instruct them. You're trying to help them out. And they look at you and a snide response. I know, I know, I know. And they don't. As a parent, I realized what my dad would just banish me. Go to your room. You don't know, Mark. Being a know-it-all caused me a lot of problems as a kid. As I've gotten older, that phrase gets to me too. It's added to the litany of words and expressions that drive me crazy. When someone who doesn't says, I know. And when someone says to you, whatever. I know it's not biblical, but it allows me to want to roll their head across the carpet. Does that make any sense? (laughs) Whatever? That is thoughtless and demeaning and impersonal and ick. And the other one is when someone goes, huh? When they heard you. It's kind of a family thing in ours. You'll say something, they'll go, huh? And I'm like, I'm not saying it again. You heard me. And they're like, no, I didn't. And then they'll answer your question. I'm like, ha, I know, don't I? Yes. <laughs> Today I want to tell you that this section that we're going to be in in Ephesians chapter 1 is one of the few times biblically where you're allowed to say, I know. It's where you're not a know-it-all. In fact, it's a prayer of Paul that we'd know these things. So I hope today when you walk out of here, you're encouraged. I'd like to begin, though, by reminding all of us, why does the church exist? 
Why would we spend money in this unusable farmland in the middle of nowhere to build these buildings to have people gather? It's not so people become famous. It's not so the name of our church becomes known. It's for this purpose alone. Listen to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12. I'd like you to see it in your Bibles. If you're, if you're here long enough, I'm going to finally convince you to underline this because it is one of the most important passages Paul would write on in my estimation. The church is to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That's why we exist. So that all of us get stronger in our faith, grow more like Jesus, serve one another more openly and willingly. Until that happens, the church must exist. It has a purpose that's greater than itself and it will last beyond its own lifetime. That's why we exist. And Paul would write to churches to get them to do these things. And he wrote to three specific churches, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. And in each of those letters while he was in prison that he wrote to them about being the church, he prayed for them. He prayed for faith, hope, and love. And what I want to do today is show you back in chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, that Paul prays a prayer and he wants us to be know-it-alls. He wants to be able to connect with us. So let's read verses 15 and 16. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Faith and love. Notice that there are two components to being a believer, according to Paul, and he would write about this in all of his writings. There is faith toward God, a belief in who God is and knowing him, and then there is a love for others. He said, I'm grateful for your faith in God and your love for the saints. Faith and love. And then he goes on to pray about some things. But when I was studying the prayers of Paul in these three letters, Philippians, Colossians, and Ephesians, I noticed something really fascinating. Paul never, I want you to notice two things about Paul's prayers. Number one, he never prays for material things. In all of the scriptures, Paul never asks that God gives us more. More of anything. What he does is he prays, interestingly enough, that we would celebrate what we already have. I think, I think we should learn something from that, right? He doesn't pray that we have more money and more people and more power and more prestige. He didn't pray all that. He says, I just pray that they would know what they already have in Christ and that that would be enough and begin them on this journey. So he wants us to know. The word know is interesting because it doesn't mean intellectually. It means the ability to have enough information about God that we trust him even when we don't have more information about God. And I've thought all week, how do you explain that concept? That seems so esoteric. To know enough about him to believe that when I don't know more about him, I still believe he's enough. And then I thought, it's, it's wedding day. I knew enough about Heather to enter into a covenant with her, not knowing what the future would bring, how she would change, how I would change. I didn't, but I knew enough in the moment that I, by faith, could give myself to that covenant, and she gave herself to me. And it's been a struggle, but it's been worth it, because going beyond what I knew to what I'm discovering is the beautiful journey. This is what it means to know. And Paul says, and here's what I want to happen at the end of the day. Paul says, here's four things I need you to know, and I want every one of us to go... I know it. Yeah, I know. That would be my pleasure this morning. Let's look at him. Paul prays for four things. Number one, that you can know God in a deeper way. This is his first part of the prayer. 
that you can know God in a deeper way. Verse 17. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Now, here's the challenge. The atheist says, there is no God, there's nothing to know. The agnostic says, if there is a God, you can't really know him. The Christian says, there is a God, and you can know him through Jesus Christ. By knowing Christ, you know the Father. Jesus even said those words. But Paul prays, interestingly, when he says that you may know God better, and it's not that you become more intellectual, that you're not deeper in Bible studies. He says that the Spirit of God may enlighten you through wisdom and revelation. Enlighten. In other words, to know God more is going to require our opening ourselves to the Spirit of God so he can reveal more to us. Now, that's a pretty deep thought. But Paul says the Spirit is full of wisdom and revelation. That he knows how, the Holy, the Holy Spirit's a person, knows how to reveal to you what God wants you to know about him so you can trust him more. An, an awareness that there is a God does not save you. The awareness that there is a God does not make you a Christian. Satan knows there's a God. Satan knows God's more powerful than we know God's more powerful, and it hasn't changed his soul at all. So knowing intellectually about God is not what we're after. He says, I want you to know God in a deeper way. How do you know anybody in a deeper way? You spend time with them. You experience the relationship. You trust. You invest. You communicate. So when we talk about reading your Bible and praying and living in community, we're not talking about things that keeps you from becoming filthy. We're talking about things that compels you to go deeper with God and to experience that. Paul in, chapter, in Romans chapter 1, Paul talks in verses 18 through 32 about how people spiral away from God and go deeper into sin. Why does it happen? Well, the first thing he says is the reason that many of us walk a very mediocre life of faith is because we willfully are ignorant of God. We've chosen to acknowledge he's here. It's like when one of your, one of your friends says, hey, I got this great friend I just met. He's really, really funny or she's really, really smart and they're really successful in business and we went out to dinner and we laughed and we had a great time and I'm over here going, that's great. That, yeah, I'm sure it's a nice person. Most of us treat God like that explanation. I'm sure he's really good and he's nice and he's great and everything, but I, I don't know him. Well, the difference between knowing God from what the scriptures tells you to knowing God in your own life is opening yourself up to the spirit of God who will reveal through his wisdom what you need to know. And it'll become a part of your life. You see, idolatry is seldom intentional. What's idolatry? It's replacing the real God for a fake God. No, no one ever wakes up today going, you know what, I'm not into God, but I'm going to create an idol. No, Paul says we get into idolatry because we are ignorant of who God really is, and so we trade what we think of God for a God that never tells us no. It's the God of alcohol, it's the God of riches, it's the God of sex, it's the God of power, it's the God of promotions, it's the God of reputation, it's the God of pride. We don't want a God who can bend our will, we want a God whose will we can bend. And those things are called idols. Because we're worshiping something that's not real because it makes us feel better about ourselves. None of us enter into that willingly. But Paul says when we're ignorant of God, we open ourselves up to a spiral into the depths of darkness because we don't know the truth. 
And if you don't know the truth, it can't set you free. So listen, here's the first prayer, that you will open yourselves up to the Spirit of God in your life so you can know Him better. Second, you can know God's calling on your present reality. This is found in verse 18. A call on your present reality. Not a future, when I die I go to heaven, but living in the kingdom of God right now. Verse 18. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Some pretty powerful words there. I want to talk to you, first thing, is about, he says, about the eyes of your heart. That seems really strange. Biologically, that makes no sense. But if you understand the term heart, the way the Hebrews used it, we think of heart as emotion. We think of it as that soft, gooey, hallmark card that says, "My, I heart you. And it's a really weakened understanding of the concept of heart. Paul, when he speaks of it, he's using the Hebrew term for heart, which meant emotion, will, and intellect. The totality of what makes you, you. That's why it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart. It doesn't mean just be affectionate toward him. It means your will, your motives, everything you are is committed to him. So when it says the eyes of your heart, I don't know if you know this, but biblically, if you look in scripture, you'll see that the Hebrew term for heart has all the senses applied to it. Now, if you're interested in this, you can email me, and I'd be happy to send you the scripture text. I've actually had a couple people in first hour already do so. The Bible says that your heart can see, hear, taste, smell, and touch, which is a little more advanced than what we think of when we use the term heart. And Paul prays that our hearts may be enlightened so we might understand the calling and the hope. The next key words, calling, an invitation. An invitation by God to erase your past and re-enter his family, his kingdom, under his rule. It's an invitation. God does not compel you to. Uh, It's one of the things about God I don't understand because he's just better than me in every way. But he doesn't make somebody, even for their own good, do the right thing. He allows us in our free will to choose. But the invitation is there. It's the father and the prodigal son standing on the porch awaiting every day for his lost child to come home. It's an invitation. And what is that calling based on? It's based on hope. It's the assurance of the future. That the God who can erase my past can protect me in my future. Too many Christians, in my estimation, in the conversations I've had as a minister, too many Christians believe that God restarted them and left them alone. As if we were stuck in the mud, God picked us up, cleaned us off, dried us off, and put us back there, and he said, now do better. That's not what God did when he saved you. He not only saved you from the mess you were in, he set your feet on the dry ground, knowing that in the future he would never leave you nor forsake you. Never would you walk alone again. And so because of that, that's my hope. My hope is that he didn't give me a mulligan. And if you play golf, every one of us has just whacked a shot that we can't even believe. I think God in heaven is going, how did you do that? And your buddy looks at you and goes, that was horrible. Hit another one, no cost. Every one of us wants to live our life by our own power. And he says, no, the hope is not in your ability to be good. The hope is in God's ability to stay with you when you're not. So, the two things we're after. We need to know that we can know God more deeply if we truly want to go beyond the intellect into our whole life. And then secondly, that the Holy Spirit can open our eyes and remind us every day of the hope of the invitation we've received. John would write it this way in 1 John 3. 
How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And this is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Did you catch that? Paul is saying, you are the children of God and the best is yet to come. What he's going to do with your future has nothing to do with your past. It's been erased. As far as the east is from the west, it's gone. There's hope in that. There's calling in that. You can know God in a deeper way and you can know God every day that way. Living towards your future and the promise of that. So when Paul says, this is what I want you to know. Did you know you can know God deeper? We can all be know-it-alls. Yeah, I know. And do you know that this can affect your every waking moment? Yeah, I know. Paul says, if that comes true, then you have many of the things that God gave you in Christ that most of us live our lives not being aware of. Third thing, you can know God's riches available in his people. This is why he's writing to the church, not to individuals. Paul's not writing to individual people that are saved living on their own. He's talking about the beauty of this, and I'll explain why in a moment. Look at verse 18, and I'm going to section off the previous parts of 18 so you can understand if this were just one sentence, it would look like this. I pray also that you may know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So you can know the riches available, but I'd, if, I'd like him to put verse 18 up on the screen. I want you to sit at the last part of that and look it with me. The riches of whose inheritance? Oh, come on, church. I know you folks in here. Who's his whenever we talk about that around here? Jesus, right? Come on. There's five answers in every church. God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, baptism, and prayer. Okay? Just fly one of those and you're going to get it right 20% of the time. All right? So, looking at that, whose inheritance is the church? Do Do you get what Paul just told us? I want you to know... You get Jesus, heaven, and all the promises of his kingdom, and he gets you. (laughs) He's getting ripped off. Absolutely. And it's called grace. Because if he gets me and I get him, somebody got ripped off on that deal, and it's not me. The church. If you ever wonder why there is a church, as messed up as it is, full of people like me, the reason there's a church is because Jesus came So that at the end of all of this, the gift God gives him for being an obedient son is us. We are his trophies. We are his accomplishments. We are the investment of his life returned a million times over. And Paul says, I want you to know that. And this is a good moment for us to go, yeah, I knew that. And it's important. Enlightenment comes based on our future tense, not our past and not our present. So this is what Paul's praying about. In fact, Jesus even prayed about it in John 17. May they be one. May they grow together. May they accomplish in unity what I've asked them to do. So you can know God in a deeper way. You can know God's calling on your present reality. And you can know the riches available to you in community. You see, you cannot. I know this is controversial, but doggone it, I know I'm right. You cannot walk the full life in obedience to Jesus Christ separate of the church. And I don't mean the the American organization. I mean the body of Christ committed to the cause of Christ, serving one another in agreement, in unity. It's, It's essential. It's God's gift. 
And even when the church is messed up and sometimes upside down, remember that it is Christ's inheritance and we stay in it, not to abandon it, we stay in it to bring it about the way God deserves it to be. And his spirit works that way. So what's the fourth thing he prays about? Is that you can know God's resurrection power in its fullness. That you can know his resurrection power in its fullness. Let's look at verses 19 through 23. Again, Paul's praying. He said, I'm praying that you might know his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realm, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under Jesus' feet and appointed Jesus to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The fullness of him who fulfills everything in every way. That reminds us of that passage in Ephesians 4 where he says that we're all together to become the fullness of Christ. But this is his plan. This is his, perf- uh, his purpose. That he said, the exceeding greatness of his power toward those of us who believe. I had a real down week. Uh, I received my first AARP application in the mail. It's not funny. You're, you're mean. You're just mean. I'm like, wow. I used to tease him. I remember my dad got his first one. We put it up on the refrigerator. We told people about it. My mom had it. She loved it. I got mine. I told my dad. He laughed. He goes, oh, it's three of the four of you got it now. And it's like, yeah, we're all old. And the truth is, I, I remember when turning 50 was, I mean, that was a moment before death. And now I'm 50, and I feel like two moments before death. But the truth of the matter is, it makes me remember I am a temporary tenant. I'm leasing this life, and I'm going to have to return it to my owner. And what hope is there for those of us heading toward the exit? Truthfully, let's be honest. In church, we say we talk about real things. Let's talk about real things. What hope is there for those of us heading toward the exit. And the truth is, if you think I'm talking about anybody, we're all headed toward the exit. Just some of us are presumptuous enough to think that we got more time than we really probably do. What hope is there? Here's the hope. Paul says that I want you to not only pray that you can know God deeper, that it can, it can alter your everyday existence, and that you can be a part of a community in which God is going to accomplish his ultimate purposes. But lastly, There is a power in our lives we're not aware of. It's not a power that that we think of. It's a power that Paul says, I want the Holy Spirit to impress upon you. And then he uses this beautiful imagery. First of all, in verse 20, he tells us it's resurrection power. Exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead will walk me through that exit. And on the other side will be my Savior. And he will say to my heavenly father, this one belongs to me. That power that will raise me from the penalty of death is the same power that rolled the stone back and walked Jesus out of the tomb two weeks ago. It's not just his power. It's not a borrowed power. It is a power available to us. And I wonder if the church really believed what Paul was praying for, we would live differently. Because that power can overcome, listen to me, that power can overcome your addictions. 
That power can overcome your self-doubt. That power can overcome your feeling of regret and remorse and pain, guilt and shame. Those things are not of God. They're of the world. And they become our idols. We say, well, I need to remember these things to keep me grounded. No, you walked free from the old man into the new life. And by the resurrection power, God, if God sees you and your future, why are you living in your past? Now, there is a reality about who I've been. But that doesn't mean I have to settle for that or be labeled by that. I can walk through the power of Jesus Christ by surrender to him into a greater future. It's resurrection power. It's also ascension power, which is powerful. And seated him at the right hand in heavenly realms. There will be a day, Jesus said, where God will separate those who trusted him and those who did not. That's why Paul says, I want you to know God deeper. So that you're not just aware he exists, but you're aware of a relationship with him in covenant. It's an ascension power that one day we will be with him again, just like in the Garden of Eden, in his presence. And in fact, you say, I can't wait for that day. If you're saying that, you may not be understanding that that same spirit of God, which will be with us in heaven, is in us right now. That same presence, that same companionship, that same accompaniment. And thirdly, it's dominion power. It's the power to reign and rule. And I know that, that of all my theology, this is the part that really makes me weird, feel weird. It's dominion power. It says in verse 21 and 22, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every title that can be given. God is granting us to know the power that we will have with Jesus. But here's, here's what it's not. The Bible does not say that we will dominate each other. When we think of power, we think of controlling people to get what we want. But it's not going to be that way. Here's what it's going to be. Every one of us is going to awaken every day and God is going to have given us responsibility and in that responsibility we're all going to find the greatest of pleasures. We're going to find real purpose. And the world in which we've destroyed by sin is going to respond to us in the new kingdom and there aren't going to be weeds and there aren't going to be mosquitoes and there aren't going to be, well I could name an animal but I'd get a letter so I won't. There aren't going to be those things. Just you fill in the blank. And it's going to be dominion with Jesus. And all of us are going to live for one purpose. It's a resurrection power, an ascension power, and a dominion power. And I want you to understand that Paul wasn't just saying this to be cute and end his sermon because he's not even done writing the book. But he uses different words for power. He uses the word for dynamo, dunamis, which we get the word dynamite. He uses the word for working, energy. He uses the word for mighty. He uses the word for authority. You see, he's saying that I want you to know the life you're settling for is not the life Jesus died to give you. You can know God deeper. You can live with God every moment of your life led by the Spirit. You can be a part of a community of people that make a difference, not just for themselves, but for everybody else. And there is a power available to us in Jesus. And he wants every one of us to look at him like that little nine-year-old know-it-all. I know. But it's not about knowing, is it? It's about choosing to live as if it's true. It's that marriage moment with God where we say, I'm going to trust you in this because I know who you are. You see, and when I think about it, I think the hardest thing for me to understand to really honestly say I know about is, it's not that God forgave me my sins. It's the fact that God forgave me for being the mark I've chosen to be. The, the cocky, the unteachable, the smart aleck, 
the, the moody, the selfish, the lazy. When I think of all the things I've done, I can think of specific sins, but they've all come from me choosing to be a guy who wanted to live with a foot in the shadow and a foot in the light. And he's had to forgive me of that. And Paul says, but Mark, I want you to know that there is something so much greater out there. It's only in Jesus Christ. And God will reveal himself to you if you will open yourself up. Risk what the world thinks, throw it away. And trust. And when God says he'll deliver, church, what will he do? He'll deliver. And that's where our faith comes in. Please allow me to pray. God, in this room, we all struggle. We all struggle with believing in ourselves, which causes us to wonder if we can believe in you. We have hurt people who no longer are protected, guarded. And, and God, in the midst of all of this, it's so easy to live in the fact that we don't do well. Even on our best days, they, they don't outnumber the numbers of times that we have chosen to be the worst parts of who we are. And yet we read Paul's prayer that we would know these things and choose them. Choose to live in their fullness. I pray this day that our hearts will be enlightened. That we will strive and seek you and pray the dangerous prayer that you'll reveal yourself. And then I pray that that affects our homes and our businesses, the way we treat people, how we respond in this lifetime, that we'll draw closer to people instead of guarded and protected. And then by doing all of that, God, I pray what Jesus asked, that your Holy Spirit would come into this place and fill the lives and hearts, fill the emptiness, so that we can walk out of here knowing that you are real, that you care, and that your Spirit is guiding us to the depths of knowing the power available to us to live this life. God, I thank you that Paul, while in prison, wrote this letter, that thousands of years later, we can say, I know, I know. Thank you, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.